the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, and I'm sworn to destroy the hand. This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekport, Seekport.org, the best online source for comic books, news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, a book that's coming out shortly. Tom, why don't you tell them about this? Yeah, the best there is at what he does, examining Chris Claremont's X-Men. This is, should come out by the time this podcast is up. This is written by Jason Powell. And I have to say, if there is a subject that is worthy of critical discourse, it's definitely Claremont's X-Men because that series ran on for so long and takes in so much cultural capital over an extended period of time. There's a lot to talk about. And if you like Seekport, support us on Patreon. Yep, support smart criticism in comics. So, shall we move on to the terrible tragedies that have struck the world of comics while we weren't here? It's just been one thing after another, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, the big news is, of course, the death at the age of 68 of horror legend Bernie Wrightson. Uh, we talked about his leaving the comic world just a few months ago when his illness just became too much to bear. And then, well, he died at a pretty young age for this day and age. I was never the world's biggest Bernie Wrightson fan because I wasn't very familiar with his work. I'm not much of a horror guy, but after he died, Twitter just filled to the brim with people sharing his art and my eyes just opened. He was amazing. He was a spectacular talent. He was definitely one of the great, I think, possibly because in his prime, you know, horror was not a dominant genre. Like, I could easily, if he had started his career today, he'd be like the king of Dark Horse right now. But circumstances being what they are, it didn't quite work out that way. But uh, his art is spectacular and really, I think, leaves a lasting legacy for him. Uh, nothing to say if you haven't read any of his stuff. You can find uh, Dark Horse, I think. Prince, his late 70s work on Creepy. Uh, DC Comics uh, are about to republish the original Swamp Thing, which he co-created with Len Wein, was it? Yeah. And IDW, I think, are holding the rights for his Frankenstein work, which is, if it's not in print now, it surely will be in print shortly. So you should check it out. It's great stuff. Uh, the other bad comic thing that happened, uh, well, <laughs> comic related and, you know, jokey joke, Iron Fist. It came out to thunderously horrible reviews. And just to be fair, both me and Sean tried to watch it. I've made it a whole of one episode through. Sean, you've made it how many? Seven. Seven. You're a stronger man than I am, Sean. <laughs> Fast forwarding through most of it, admittedly. Uh, this show is terrible. Yeah. This show is horribly conceived from every single aspect of it, from the casting to the writing to the acting to the fight choreography to the effects to the opening scene. The opening credits is just a guy, you know, kicking on, on the screen and there's like weird echoey, smoky... After Effects, and originally I thought, oh, he's going to spell out the logo with, with the kicks or something, but no, it's just a guy punching and kicking. Punching and kicking nothing also, like he's just punching air. Which is a good metaphor for that series. Ugh. I mean, I'll say this much. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that there were certain warning signs that at the time we talked about, but didn't necessarily think would determine anything, right? Let's not forget that up until that point, 
Netflix as a whole had done largely right by Marvel's product, right? Daredevil, the first season, was phenomenal. Jessica Jones was amazing. Uh, Luke Cage, you know, I didn't particularly care for it, but it had its fans, right? And I did manage to watch all the way through to the end. This series suffers in two regards. First of all, by necessity, it's going to be compared to the others. And this is the lame duck, right? This is the one that stands out for being poorly conceived, poorly written, poorly cast. Every single creative aspect here is a failure, which is something that I find amazing. Usually a show can drop a ball and keep the others in the air or make one mistake and and figure out a way out of it. But I was thinking about it. We were talking back in the day about how it was strange that they had waited so long to get a showrunner, right? The, the announcement of the showrunner for Iron Fist came very, very late in the year. The same goes for the casting of Iron Fist. I think the difference between when they started filming and when they announced that Finn Jones had been cast was a matter of a, a couple of months tops. And when you're watching the show, and going back and remembering how that worked, I was just amazed at how it feels as poorly constructed and poorly thought out as it must have actually been. Because, like, from the top, right? Finn Jones. Bad choice. Bad choice. Bad choice. We knew it was a bad choice. We were talking about it at the time. And yes, there was that controversy about the possibility of an Asian-American Danny Rand Chris Anka has been posting artwork of a Chinese Denny Rand and all of that. It just inspired a whole line of fan art and that's all fantastic. But this is the thing that amazes me. Even if they wanted to stick to the physical type of what Danny Rand looks like in the comics, which is already a fallacy to argue because let's not forget that in the comics, Matt Murdock is a redhead and I mean fire hydrant Beelzebub, nymphomaniac, Irishman, red. Well, let's not forget it. In the comic, Iron Fist looks like he can kick your ass. And in the TV show, Iron Fist looks, <laughs> looks like he's going to sell you some granola bars. <laughs> he doesn't look like Iron Fist. He doesn't wear the suit. They're like, he should look like the comics. Except for, you know, the iconic... Well, iconic. The rather familiar design of the Iron Fist suit. See, that's exactly where I was going with it. The idea that if you wanted a blue-eyed blonde to play Danny Rand, they're easy to find in Hollywood. You could literally pick someone up off the street who probably could have done a better job than Finn Jones. This guy is... And I'll be completely fair and say that the script doesn't help him, right? The script doesn't help anybody. Even if he were a moderately good actor, faced with this material, it would have dragged him down. But the fact that the script wants Danny to be naive and childlike, but also wise and entitled and all of these things together, he wants everything and everything is his and he deserves it. He's a selfish idiot who is being portrayed as the hero of the story and that doesn't work. They think we're supposed to love him but the first thing he does like the very first thing he does he steps into an office building and he says oh this is my office building and then when security guards coming to arrest the homeless weirdo walking into their building 
he beats them up, then he goes into the highest part to the people who manage it and says, by the way, I'm your childhood friend you haven't seen in 15 years. And when they say prove it, he's like, you have to believe me instead of saying, well, when we were children... Which he ends up doing later anyway, so... So, and later when they kick him off the building, he stalks to the home of the female lady and watches her. He's an arresting, violent stalker. Ten minutes into the show, and we're supposed to find him charming. Now, his romance with Colleen Wing kicks off by him buying her building. Ugh! Creepy! I'm a fairly conservative, socially person. I am far from being woke, as it were. But watching this show, I was like, yeah, this is white privilege, the TV show. This is about a guy who's convinced that everything is owed to him. And every time somebody sells him, no, like, I was met only by hostility. Yes, because you were a violent offender coming into people's lives uninvited and forcing yourself into their places, into their homes, into their business. And you're like, well, why don't you immediately love me and trust me? Because you're a creep. You're a stalking creep, a violent stalking creep. I'm going to blow your mind now and tell you that it gets even worse later on because... I believe you. He does have this attitude of everything is mine. And then the central conceit of Danny Rand, according to this series, is that he is both the champion of Kunlun, the Iron Fist, and he wants to take back control of his father's company, right, to be the the, uh, majority shareholder of Rand Enterprises. He gets both of these things and immediately becomes apparent that not only does he not know what to do with either role, He doesn't even want it. He only went after Iron Fist because he thought it was cool. He wants uh, control of the company because it's it's his his father's and it's his. That's it. Once he gets it, he doesn't know what to do with it. He ends up screwing everything up. And it would have been fine if the show would have presented it as sort of a disaster as him learning and being humbled. But just assuming from the first episode and from other reviews... He doesn't. The show just reinforces his attitude. It's like watching Batman Begins without Bruce Wayne being humbled or learning anything or something. Well, it's also, and it's rare that I give Katie Holmes credit for anything, but it's also Batman Begins without the character of Rachel to call Bruce on his bullshit, right? Where he always had a character who was critical of him. This show just doesn't do it. It does ask us to sympathize with this enormous douchebag who is throwing around money, who is constantly reminding everyone that he's the master of Kung Fu and that he was trained to destroy the hand even though he doesn't believe the hand exists. And when he finds out that the hand exists, he's useless at fighting them. He's he's a superhero, not a superhero, he's a martial arts hipster. First episode, where did you study? Oh, in Kwanun, you probably never heard of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you probably never heard of it. My God. And this is where, and they don't even know that they're doing it. This is the tragedy, right? They're invoking all of these tropes and they have no idea that they're falling into these traps. But the thing is, it occurred to me watching that first episode that the only way this could have made sense is if the character had actually come from Kunlun and had never been in New York, right? If he was like a one-year-old baby that got lost in Kunlun, right? Sure, that would have worked too. Because the way that they play it 
is that he was 10 when he was, you know, when his family crashed in the Himalayas or whatever. 10 years old, you understand, like, basic social norms by that point. Or if you don't, there's something really wrong with you. So, I don't know. I don't understand how this happened, how they put these scripts out, which are so bad. Also, the fight scenes are terrible. Just in case you're hoping for some saving grace, it looks so fake and he moves so slowly. He moves his hand and some guy gets punched across the room for some reason. Finn Jones said that he only learned the choreography for certain fight scenes 15 minutes before they started filming. Which goes to show, again, this is a series that by default suffers by comparison. Because in episode four, they try to invoke a hallway fight where he is taking on a bunch of triads with hatchets in a long corridor. It's very clearly trying to invoke the same feel as the Daredevil fight in season one. Except they put maybe 20 cuts in the Iron Fist fight, which are clearly meant to show that it's not Finn Jones who's actually doing the stunts, right? Maybe if he wore the mask, they could have used the stunt double, but no, they don't. So it has to be the skinny guy who, he doesn't look like a fighter. He doesn't move like a fighter. He, do, he doesn't fight like a fighter. And if you're, go, if you're not going to use the costume, you should probably hire an actor who can fight. Yeah, I can understand the argument that they didn't necessarily want to go with the whole costume, right? With the V-neck down to his groin. That I could, I could get, because like the idea is that he's showing off the dragon tattoo, whatever. At least the hood, the upper mask, right? The part that he puts over his head. Yeah. At least that. They could have figured out some way to do that where it looked at least as quote unquote normal in the context of the world as Matt's First appearance, right, when he's uh, the man in the mask. Uh, have you seen uh, Graham McMillan's from Wait What podcast proposed first line to the Defenders TV show? No. He published it on Twitter and got like a thousand shares or something. Like first Defenders, uh, first cut, Luke Cage. It's a shame that Iron Fist died. I'm so sad. <laughs> I'm so sad we won't be able to hear all of his smart opinions about race relations in the United States of today. Iron Fist died on the way to his home planet. (laughs) This might be because the the reaction is so negative. I'm actually hoping that if they're doing the Defenders thing, whatever, they now have a sacrificial lamb. They could kill him, I don't know, like two episodes into say, oh, the threat is real. They killed the main character of Iron Fist. And next season, instead of a new Iron Fist TV show, it will be Daughters of the Dragon with Colin Wing and Misty Knight. Oh, that would be great. I mean, I'll, I'll say this much. I wouldn't place any bets on a season two of Iron Fist. We do know that they're going ahead with the Punisher. There was talk back in the day that they were going to do Moon Knight. They could absolutely do Daughters of the Dragon because Colleen Wing is... I mean, aside from Claire Temple, Colleen is maybe the best thing about the series, which unfortunately isn't saying much because the script doesn't do her any favors uh, either. And that's why I don't blame Finn Jones that much because nobody looks good from that episode, from that script, that directing. But I don't know. Finn Jones specifically, I, I do place a lot of the blame on him only because as the lead actor, he could have at least, he couldn't have saved the material, but he could have made it bearable. The fact that he fails at communicating any aspect of Danny in a believable way 
just makes it worse. You know what I mean? Like you would have been willing to sit through a mediocre script that had decent performances, but when the lead actor is the worst part of your show, that's a problem. Especially when all of the action scenes focus on him, right? It's not like an ensemble piece. I mean, the thing about Daredevil, you know, the reason that I'm staying optimistic is even if we do have to put up with Finn Jones for another 13 episodes, there will be three other actors on that show who are better than him. So he's in the minority there. And also, and granted, this is me being completely optimistic, right? I lost interest in Luke Cage on his own show. I thought he was incredibly compelling in Jessica Jones. Sometimes it really is about the writer. Now, Sean, we have to admit to address the elephant in the room that the only reason we don't like Iron Fist is because we're PCSJWs. That's a known fact. That's the only possible reason for not liking that show because we wanted an Asian American actor and because we didn't get it, you know, we didn't get something that aligned with our political opinions. We're SJWs, you know, this show can't tell the difference between Chinese and Japanese kiss my ass, you know, like at some point those arguments become so disingenuous. Madam Gao is in this show working for the hand. Madam Gao is Chinese. She was introduced in Daredevil, where she was not part of the hand. This show cannot tell the difference between karate and kung fu. She, she's the foot. Aye, 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 aye. She's the foot to the hand, and I assume Daredevil <laughs> is the liver, and, and it's a whole metaphor for the human body, whatever. Speaking as someone who owns the entire run of Ed Brubaker's The Immortal Iron Fist, even after Dwayne... Swierzynski, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. I know I'm Swierzynski, oh god, yeah. I stuck around because that was good kung fu action comics. This, I don't know what this is, but I don't need any more of that. That's all I got to say. Anything else news-wise? One other bit of news that I deliberately did not prepare you for because I wanted your genuine reaction, Tom. Okay. Speaking of mess, this news actually made me sit up and go, oh my god. So Paramount has announced that they're planning to adapt a comic book, a graphic novel to be precise. They're doing Garth Ennis's The Pro. Huh. I think I've heard about that. The Pro. Well, as a film. here's my hot take on it. A, it's not going to happen. Or B, if it is going to happen, it's going to be so different from the source origin as to be... Meaningless. It's going to be like Miller's and J.G. Jones Wanted, which got adapted into a movie which, for the best, I, I think, changed pretty much every single thing about the origin other than the name of the protagonist. Yeah, but here the name of the protagonist is The Pro, because she's a prostitute. I don't know how that... <laughs> she, that's gonna be, she's going to be a single mother who's an exotic dancer and she gains superpowers and it's going to be inspirational, probably. The Pro is one of those, and I'm a huge Garth Ennis fan, an apologist, some might say, and by some I mean you, Sean. Uh, but The Pro is one of those things of him that I don't care about because it's him being very angry about the superhero market and using the comics to express that anger. And uh, it's just like The Boys, or uh, what was the one? Uh, I'll tell you what the thing is, though. I actually do like The Pro. And I like it significantly more than The Boys, because The Boys is just Ennis being petty. The Pro was at least funny. And short. 
and short. And also, you know, yes, there's a scene in which, like, the entire narrative just halts to a stop so that the protagonist can give a two-page lecture about how superheroes are useless in the face of 9-11. Which is Ennis losing control of the story, as it were. But other than that, you know, the jokes in it are funny in relations to superheroes and sexuality and how... I think it's just, like we've talked, Deadpool and Logan are successful, so studios are stumbling in the dark looking for R-rated superhero work. Like, is it a comic? Yes. Is it superhero? Yes. Is it R-rated and rude? And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if DC would announce Slowbo shortly. Well, if they do, I just need them to understand one thing. Paramount, if you're listening, it needs to be funny. If it's not funny, then you are doing it wrong. This is meant to be a comedy. From all of Gert's Ennis' library, I, I, I would admit I wasn't expecting the pro to be first on the set. I, I thought, you know, somebody would take one of his war stories or battlefields or a TV show based on Red Team, which is running right now in Dynamite, which is basically a 90s HBO TV show in comic book form, you know, Corrupt Cops and The Shield and stuff like that. So the pro... That's weird. It would be like if the first, I don't know, Grant Morrison comics adapted into screen would have been... Uh, the Filth? Well, no, no the, the Filth is great. Uh, I still dream about David Cronenberg's uh, screen version of The Filth. No, something like his uh, one-issue G.I. Joe story, or, I don't know, the horror story about toys from Weird War Tales that he did with Frank Whiteley. That was actually a great story, but just thinking, oh, this is going to be his first movie. His first stumble into Hollywood. Weird. You know what? It's Ennis and Palmiotti, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So these are two creators that I appreciate. And if nothing else, if this was option, it means that people that I whose work I mostly enjoy get money, which is good. So even if it doesn't make it into actual film, they still got the option money, which means they can, you know clear some more time, enjoy their life a bit, and comic creators deserve that. Previews! Previews, right, right. These are the previews for June, yes? Yes. Uh, nothing from DC or Marvel. I'll just put that out there right now. Yeah, I, I would say this. I've looked at the art previews for the new uh, Nick Fury series, which the problem with Marvel is that really they're drowning the market and stuff, so I didn't see it until somebody in my Twitter feed said, oh, look at that. It's drawn by... Echo, the guy who did the Midnighter series, and it looks gorgeous. He's channeling Stranko now, doing like all of these high contrast pop inspired work. Yeah. So it looks great. Uh, problem is, it's written by James Robinson. And I'm like, oh yeah, James Robinson hadn't written a good comic in a good long while. Yeah, it's been a bit too long, I think. I'm just, I'm just saying, if you haven't looked at it, uh, Echo, if he wasn't a superstar before, he would be a superstar after that series based on his work alone. Yeah, that's fair. The larger problem, of course, being that, again, to use the old refrain, you can't trust Marvel. What's the point of getting invested in this series? Five issues in, he's going to tie into... Secret Empire 4. Probably. I would not be surprised. Inhumans versus Guardians. So, over at Image, a couple of interesting number ones. Crosswind. This is by Gail Simone and Kat Staggs. Now, this isn't Simone's first creator-owned work, right? No, she has. She did stuff for Vertigo. She's doing yeah. Clean Room right now. Yeah. Also, I finally remembered the name of that comic that we always bring up but forget the name of, about that child star who becomes a cop. Okay. It was Effigy. 
Oh, right. Was it ever continued? Because we did the first arc, and it ended on a cliffhanger, and like, oh, it's gone. Yeah, I think it was, like, quietly cancelled. It was Marley Zircon as an artist, right? Because she moved to yeah. Shade. I've been down on Simone for years. I think that she has been in kind of a slump. Uh, her other recent work at DC, uh, rebooting Secret Six, did not pan out. That said, I'm willing to give her another chance. The premise of Crosswind is about a housewife who swaps bodies with a hitman, which is a potentially interesting premise. Freakier Friday. Freakier Friday, sure. That could work. Kill the Minotaur number one. This is by Chris Pacetto and Christian Cantamesa. Art by Lucas Kettner and Jean-Francois Bolio. I don't know any of these creators, but... Lucas Kettner did the art for Witch Doctor, which we both really liked. Oh, okay. It's gonna look good. Oh, it's gonna look fantastic then. So it's, it's a take on the story of Theseus, you know, Greek mythology, which I could be into. It seems to be a straightforward retelling of the story, but I don't think that Image would have commissioned that. So there's probably a twist. Yeah, Shirtless Bear Fighter by <laughs> Jody Lef and Sebastian uh, Greiner with art by Mike Spicer, not that Mike Spicer, and Neil Vandrell. I would not be surprised. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a joke comics about a shirtless guy punching bear. It's just a miniseries, so they know... It's, it, they know their proper length for that kind of story, which is five issues. And I will say this. The problem with a lot of image series is that they tend to have that one to two name titles, which are so become so generic. It's like, it's Black Cloud. It's Cloudless. It's Ash Cloud. It's, it's Cloudburst. It's, it's God Flesh, <laughs> God Shaper, God Sun. And you can't remember any of them. Now, this is a title you will never forget, right? It's Shirtless right. Bear Fighter. What's it about? It's about the shirtless guy who fights bears. It's simple. Apparently his name is also Shirtless Bear Fighter, which explains a lot. There are bears. He fights them. He's shirtless. Now, I, the interesting thing about that is that apparently Bear Fighter is like, it's the last name. It's not a middle name. It's like Bear Hyphenated Fighter. So it's not, <laughs> so it's not like Shirtless Bee Fighter. It's Bear Fighter, comma, shirtless, which is important distinction. Yes, the hyphen is the source of his powers. Uh, this one's for me and I think several other brave souls. Bulletproof Coffin, The Thousand Yard Stairs. It's a 32-page one-shot continuing the odd, odd, odd series by uh, David Hine and Shaky Kane, which was sort of a tribute slash reconstruction to Golden Age comics. There have been, throughout the years, many, many tributes to the Silver Age, but the oddness of the Golden Age of superheroes is something people usually ignore, and the two previous Bulletproof Coffin miniseries, which is super bizarre affair, which I can't even begin to explain. Just wonderful stuff. Though, obviously, if you haven't read those, you probably should, and only then come back for this one. Yeah, I have a hard time feeling that this is going to be new reader-friendly. Anything else from Image? Uh, no, not really. Uh, from the solicit, it seems like Shudder is heading for the big finish, I think. It, maybe it's just regular solicitation. Yeah, well, you know, it's 29 issues in at this point, so I assume they're aiming for something. Probably 32 would be my guess, because then it, in terms of the trades, it ends up... I, I, I finally caught up with Shudder, and um, I'm enjoying it. It's one of those series that's good, but like one step away from being great. It's like it's almost there, but it's never quite there. 
I need to reread it. I remember losing interest in it after the second arc and then always saying I'll go back and, you know, see it again. But maybe it does need to be read in its, when it's completed and go over it and see what's what. Uh, I'm, I'm open to that possibility because, you know, Joe Keating is a good writer. Yeah. We'll see where that goes. Over at Dark Horse, here's an interesting one. I usually don't pay attention to trades, but this time it's an exception. Uh, Grendel Tales Omnibus, Volume 1. Now, I was hoping that they'd do this because Dark Horse already did a phenomenal job putting together the core Grendel books from Matt Wagner. Now, the Tales were this anthology series, sort of like The Sandman Presents. What's unique about them is that most of them did not go back to goddamn Hunter Rose, unlike Wagner, who can't seem to let that character go. Now, as is the nature of any anthology, these stories are hit and miss. Uh, Robinson's Four Devils, One Hell was good. Devil in Our Midst was basically the thing, but with Grendel's. Mm -hmm. And then you have some of those Darko Makan stories that were clunky as hell. But I feel like overall it's a solid collection. Something like 400 pages for 25 bucks, which... Jeez, that's cheap. Yeah, they're going for Omnibus, and that doesn't even collect everything, right? That's volume one of two. You, you keep on telling me, Tom, you should read it, but I'm like, it's, there's so much of it. I don't want to start. There's so much of it. It's like 40 years worth, and he's, not, he's never finished, right? He never finished it. Tom, you read Usagi Jimbo. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's right, because I also read <laughs> Yusagi Jimbo and the other big project that I've started recently, which we will talk about in reviews. Uh, since we've mentioned Dark Horse and large books for good prices, Paula Cthulhu uh, TPB, though it seems to be a graphic novel because I don't remember any series. Now, it's one of those comedy, horror, post-Cthulhu type thing, which, you know, Monster Hunters, which is usually... You know, it's been overplayed way too much. But this is co-written by Evan Dorkin, who is a great talent. Uh, yeah. With uh, Sarah Dyer, who I think I heard her name before, though I can't recall from where. But get this, 240 pages, $13. That's an amazing deal. As uh, you know, you know, We keep on complaining that Marvel is flooding the market with like five bucks for 30 pages. And, and meanwhile... Dark Horse, like, yeah, we'll give you 300 pages for, like, 10 bucks, whatever. What what you have in your pocket here, give us 20 cents. You just got it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Even if I'm not the biggest fan of the comic, it's, you know, a level of customer service and fan engagement and not just being greedy, just, you know, we'll take any anything we can. We'll, we'll squeeze you like a It's like, no, this is what the comic has cost us to make. This is how we can make a profit. Here it is. The... Priority for them is to introduce the material to readers who might otherwise not have had access to it. And then they can go from there, right? And speaking of customer-friendly initiatives, uh, Oni has announced a program that they're putting out in June called Square One, where they release four number one issues at a dollar apiece. These are Space Battle Lunchtime, Another Castle, Courtney Crumrin, and The Mighty Zodiac. And also two trade paperbacks for $10 each. And like Dark Horse, you know, this is a good plan. This is a good way to appeal to people who might not necessarily be into comics because they are so cost prohibitive at this point. So I applaud Dark Horse for that. I applaud Oni for that. 
Uh, I, IDW are releasing the Gem and Misfits Infinite miniseries that we've talked about in the last episode. I don't think we have much to add. If you're a Gem fan, you probably want to be there to read what will probably be the big finish. If not, it's probably not a good jumping on point. At that point, probably not. <laughs> not. Not the best jumping on point. No, like this is the point where they jump to alternate worlds and break the genre. So I don't think that that's where you want to introduce yourself to the series. But, you know, I mean, the the series did not go on for that long. I think it didn't even make 30 issues. No, 28, so, 28 issues. Yeah, so if anybody's inclined to go and track it down, Kelly Thompson did some amazing work. She worked with very, very talented artists. It's worth a look. And if this sticks to that level of quality, that'll be great. Uh, anything else for you? Nope. Okay. Shall we move on to comics? Now, last episode, we had an avalanche worth of comics. Uh, these last two weeks have been a bit quieter, but still, some interesting things to talk about. Uh, shall we start with Cody and the Creeps? The one, I think, that we both read? Sure. So, it's a four-issue miniseries from Boom, Natch, about a band called... The Creepies, actually, I think. I don't think they're called Cody and the Creepies in the in the series proper, right? No. No, Cody is the drummer, but she's also the protagonist. The, the band is called The Creepies. Yeah, it's uh, written by Liz Prince, who did some very good uh, comedy cartooning uh, collection of her stuff, I think, come out via Fantagraphics, and illustrated by Amanda Kirk, whose work I am unfamiliar with. And the plot being that this punk band has been in an accident, and... One of them had a scar on her face, one of them is now bound to a wheelchair, and one of them, Cody, is apparently fine without any injuries, only when they go to a show in, uh, what was the name of that city? Don't remember. Uh, it's New Mexico. It's New Mexico, right. We are revealed a hidden and horrible truth about her, which I will spoil because it's in the previews, right? It's in, it's the content of the series, I can't not spoil it. And talk about it, Cody is dead. She's basically a ghost that can only stay solid when she focuses really hard. And it's going to apparently be a drive through the US and they're going to encounter a different mystery every week. A la Scooby-Doo. Folded into the idea that they're racing to play all the best punk venues, this event called Pinmageddon. And they have, they're obviously trying to keep ahead of their competition, the Boneheads who are a stereotypical douche bro rock band. One of them has a unibrow. It's pretty amazing. I haven't seen a <laughs> neck beard, but it's implied. Yeah. So what do you think of it? It's one of those boom series where I'm like, it's probably going to read better in trade. It feels a bit too much factory made in terms of style and presentation and... She's a ghost, and she's dead, and she doesn't want anybody to know it. And she's, from the get-go, so good at it that nobody notices. So what's where's the drama? I don't get where's the drama of her being dead, and why there's no... I don't think it's played for drama. There's another supernatural threat, which appears Scooby-Doo style. Like, it's hinted, it's like thrown around with a band in the first few pages, and then... It literally appears, and what what's the connection of it to the other thing? I don't know, and I don't really care about these characters. I have to admit, mm. I just okay. I didn't feel connected to any of them. It's not it's not a bad issue. It's very competently made, and 
You know, the art's lovely in a very lo-fi sort of way, which is fitting for a series about a punk band, but I don't know. I just I wasn't into it. I have to be honest. I actually really, really enjoyed this. Ooh, I thought that the sisters were endearing, and something about Amanda Kirk's art style made it a perfect match for the tone of the story, because <clears throat> the thing is... When you first start out reading it, and this is what I appreciated about it, because a lot of comics tend to get this wrong. Uh, Prince sets up the story so that you think this is a Battle of the Band scenario, right? Where they are trying to win Pinmageddon. They're going to be the first band ever. They're these three sisters. They were in this terrible car accident that changed all of them, except you think for Cody. One of their friends was killed. And then... A year later, they are almost to the end, and you think that that's the plot until you realize that there are ghosts involved, right? That there's a supernatural angle, and then Cody herself turns out to be a ghost. And then there's another mystery layered on top of that where the other ghost that she meets tells her, you know, spirits have been disappearing, and they're not being reincarnated. We don't know where they're going. We don't know what's happening with that. So what she manages to do here... And what I appreciate in contrast to, you know, we, we're talking about a formula that we have seen so many times when it comes to four-issue, six-issue miniseries from Image and Boom. And so many times we've talked about the first-issue test, right? Does this issue manage to set up the premise? Not only does Prince succeed with that, but she manages to fake you out along the way because this is not the story you think it is when you start reading it. I didn't remember the solicitation text, so... The mm. supernatural angle had completely, you know, eluded me at the time. So it is an effective twist for someone coming into it blind because, wow. Well, I assume even from the cover and the, and everything, it seems to end at a... Because Kaboom, I, I guess, wouldn't do just a straight series about teenage band. It's not their thing. There's all... Except from Giant Days, there's always a supernatural twist. Uh, is there's all, not, not a supernatural, but there is always something, you know, there's, you know, it's not just a teenage, it's a teenage detective, it's a teenager who can make people fall in love, it's a teenager family of super scientists. It's, well, no, that's not true. There's Goldie Vance. Like I said, um, she's a detective. It's not, it's, it's not that just, oh, here's Goldie and her mother runs in a hotel, here's her totally ordinary life, and I haven't read the rest of Goldie Vance yet. I assume there's some deeper conspiracy in that just the day-to-day life of a hotel detective. Right, I was referring more to the supernatural angle. Yeah, but I'm saying there's a gimmick, as it were. But I did think that it worked. Like It was convincing in the context of the story because it does draw attention. Like Looking back on it, I can see how subtly Prince foreshadows it because they, the Creepies become known as the band who lived because they were in this horrible car crash. That is in itself a mystery because nobody can figure out how they got from the highway to crashing into that tree. And they don't even talk about it. But at the same time, this crash, you know, suggests that there was something weird going on. And then Cody was supposedly the only person who got out of it okay. And then she turns that on its head by revealing she had died and was holding herself together by force of will. And didn't even tell anyone. She didn't even tell her sisters. I found that intriguing. You know, that was a premise that I'm willing to follow to the conclusion. Like you said, this is only a four-issue miniseries. In that context, I have confidence that there's a complete story here and that it will be delivered competently based on this issue. And I'm into that. 
Hmm. Okay. Uh, anything else you've read this week? Oh, quite a few things. Uh, so, Batwoman number one by Marguerite Bennett and James Tinney and the Fourth, art by Steve Epting. This is from DC. Woo! Good looking. I don't even have to look at it to know it's good looking, right? He does some good work. And it says a lot about the groundwork that Greg Rucka and J.H. Williams laid out when they established this character that I keep coming back for new runs, hoping that something will click. And it hasn't yet with Kate Kane. I do keep running into these situations where writers use her and I'm not really into it. And I, I didn't really know what to expect going in. Now, Bennett is a decent writer. I'm much more fond of Tinian based on his past indie work. So the question was, you know, how does this hold up and am I going to stick around? The premise is that Kate is in Istanbul working with someone called Julia Pennyworth. I'm assuming this is someone Snyder introduced, like a daughter of Alfred or something. I don't know. I don't know who that is. But anyway, they're tracking people who are using a version of Bane's venom drug that turns them into monsters. And the mystery leads Kate to a secret from her past, something about a mysterious island, a woman that she was involved with. The dialogue is a bit clunky, and I'm going to lay that on Bennett specifically because it is a recurring weakness with her. She does occasionally write internal monologues and dialogue lines that just, if you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Exospeak. Yeah, in a very... It sounds unnatural even in the context of the story where you just pause and say, hang on, what did she mean by that? That doesn't make any sense. That is kind of a tick of Bennett's that I'm hoping she'll work on in the future. But other than that, it is an interesting first issue. Epting's art is on point. I can tell he's not J.H. Williams, but he's trying to get there. There are full-page spreads here that are deliberately invoking, you know, she's standing on the prow of a ship, her cape blowing in the wind, her hair blowing in the opposite direction. It works. You know, he's really going for a very visual, a very rich style. And I mean, it's Steve Epting, so of course it's going to look good, like you said. I am tentatively sticking around for more, but I don't know that I have the patience for another long-form conspiracy mystery thing, especially with the unstable situation at DC right now with Watchmen and time travel and all of this nonsense. Is it bi-weekly or, or once a month? I think that it's bi-weekly. I think so. I haven't seen the second issue yet, and this one came out last week, but... I don't know. I'm cautiously optimistic. I am intrigued by the direction that they've chosen to go in, where, you know, she was involved with this mysterious woman who might have been a drug smuggler, might have been an assassin. It's not really clear. She's going to confront her again. and It could work. Like, I can see scenarios where this would function both as an exploration of Kate's character, which, to be frank, she could use a little more development because nobody's really done that much with her after the whole marriage scandal broke out at DC. So it would be nice to sort of get back into that. Whether Bennett and Tinian are the ones to do it, only time will tell. I'm sticking around at least for the first arc, but I do need them to step it up a notch. Okay. Now, shall you talk to us about Helena Crash? Because I've ordered it via my store, but they didn't get it yet. It's written by Fabian Rangel Jr., who did Space Raiders, my one true love. And drawn by, uh, what's his name? Warwick Johnson Cadwell, which is quite a name. This is a guy who sounds like he should have a monocle, right? Warwick <laughs> Johnson Cadwell, the third. 
comic book artist and aficionado. He draws comics on his estate. Uh, so this is a four-issue miniseries from IDW. I kind of wish you had read it too because I'm not sure what to think. I've read the first, the preview of it, which was like seven pages. So I get the feeling of it. Okay. The, the premise is that this is a dystopia where coffee has become so rare it's illegal. Helena is a courier who makes dangerous deliveries, including coffee. She makes a delivery to a well-known crime boss who asks to hire her to assassinate his rival. Now, the art style is a little unusual. What Cadwell does is this world that Helena is in seems to have monsters and robots and crime bosses who wear luchador masks. A lot of weird stuff, but it's never explained in the story. It was actually kind of weird to me because what Wrangle does is the first establishing fact that he does for this story is to say, because of environmental factors, coffee is so rare it's illegal. And I'm like, okay, that does not explain why the next scene has her picked up by a werewolf. I'm not sure what the connection is between those two things. There's a bigger premise here that's not, you know, that, that's, that's unclear to me. I'm not sure how we got there. It seems to be just the style of this world. It's very Tangirl influenced, I guess, from the description and the style. I, I do believe this guy actually did some, some of the recent Tangirl miniseries. Which is to say, it's one of those worlds where you just throw everything on the wall. It's like, yeah, you know, this world has werewolves and probably aliens and, I don't know, some shamans raising demons and such. Yeah, but I think that even in those cases, when you have those, uh, <laughs> pun intended, when you have those smorgasbord settings where everything is legit and there's all things are possible, Shadowrun comes to mind, you know, all of that. Even then, though, there tends to be some kind of basic underlying premise just to explain what is the central conceit, right? And it can be done, even if it's just a throwaway line, even if it's just an excuse to get the story started because what it's really about is Helena and coffee, which would be fine, right? It is weird to me that, I mean, look, even in Tank Girl, we know that the inciting incident is that a meteor hit the earth and that's why all the water dried up. It doesn't have to make sense, but it does have to suggest some kind of internal plausibility. Now, maybe that's part of what we're going to find out later. Although, based on the the overall feel of the issue, the premise here is that Helena is being forced to assassinate a crime boss. I don't know that that's something that necessitates... Like, it's not clear to me why does this setting have to have monsters in it. I think it's one of those cases of why not, just because the artist wants to. Like you said, I have no problem with that type of thing. Without reading the full issue, I can't comment on its quality. It seems like the kind of thing I like. And the art style is very much like the recent stuff that Gene Maffodus makes, which is to say it's wild designs, but there's certain intended flatness to it. It's like, what if gravity had come to life? And everybody has those weird, you know, the neck is like bent forward and the muscles and the arms like twisted around a bit. Nobody's drawn. It works. It really does work. It, it works for this type of story, which when I've read the previews, I said, well, because Rangel likes to do this kind of post-pop things, so it means he's very dependent on his artist. 
his first work, well, his first work that I've read, uh, Doc Unknown. Yes, yes. Which I didn't really like because it had all those wild, crazy ideas, but the artist was just like a good renderer. So it was just like, oh, you know, here's an action scene and he punched a guy. But then when Space Raiders came in, he had all those crazy ideas, but it's drawn by Alexis Zirin and suddenly it works. So he seems to be a writer whose stories are very much dependent on a good team up with the artist. He also has one uh, right now, which I haven't read yet from... Yeah, Eric Powell. Eric Powell has a small imprint called Albatross Comic. And he has one from there called Namewolf, which is about werewolves in Vietnam. Which seems to be the type of idea that Fabian Wrangel Jr. would have, and I wonder, and I should probably read it. I just need to look at the art first. A good artist is what he needs, but once he has a synergy with an artist, you have some amazingly fun kinetic comic, right? Yeah, and, and to be fair, like I do think that this could be fun. The issue begins with this action sequence where she's outracing a bunch of goons that are after her, and it's all just to get her her coffee delivery. It works. It makes sense. I am just hoping that Wrangle will... It also helps that Space Riders, I think, is ongoing. Or if it's not ongoing... It's it a has... series of miniseries. It's like they're doing four issues and they waited a year and now they're doing another four issues. Right. If this is a four-issue mini and it's just sort of a done-in-one project, I guess I can... So I, I just... I don't know. I, I want the story to make more sense than Space Riders did. And I hope it does. If it doesn't, if it's all just a showcase for the artwork. What what more sense do you need from space writers? They were writers in space. Oh listen, there was like an there was a mandrill yes. at some point. I don't know. An armed space mandrill, Sean. And it, I read if you, if you don't like it, we might we might not be able to be friends anymore, Sean. <laughs> no, listen, I have thing. I respected Zurich's artwork. I do think, you know, that that was amazing. The story just didn't appeal to me. You know this about me. I need more than just the question of why not just because. You know, that's that's not what I come to comics well, for. Well, then you're probably, you're probably not, not the right person for the next comics that I've read. Transformers versus G.I. Joe, the movie, <laughs> the official comic book adaptation, written, drawn, lettered, uh, pretty much anything by Tom Scioli, published by IDW. Now, if you've listened to any episode of the podcast, if you ever met me before, if and even if you haven't, it's probably true that you've heard me rave and rant about my love for Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, which ended last year after uh, 13 issues plus issue zero. And now we get this, which is one of the strangest concepts in a long, long time. Scioli is making an adaptation of the Transformers vs. G.I. Joe movie which, of course, never happened. So it's, what if there had been a movie adaptation of his comic, and that has been, in turn, adapted into a one-shot comic? Like, you remember when they had the Rocketeer movie, they had a comic based on the movie, even though it's already based on a comic? Or when they did the comic book version of the Tim Burton Batman movies? So it's kind of that. So everything is a bit truncated and shorted and even more compressed than the regular Tom Scioli comic, which could... First issue, oh, here's Earth. Second issue, Earth is destroyed. Third issue, let's build a new solar system. He doesn't stop. So it's just... It's a super weird creation that doesn't make any sense unless you've read the previous 14 issues and you don't know to what he refers to. 
it's not a jumping on point. It's not a nothing point unless you're already a fan. And it's mostly exist as a commentary, both on his own work and on the previous idea of transformer fiction in general, because it's not just the story. Once the proper adaptation is finished, he has like a back matter of if this were a movie. So he has interviews with the actors playing the characters. <laughs> including, and, and he has like, what if we had special effects team trying to make it non-CGI Transformers vs. G.I. Joe movie with men in suits? So the guy playing Optimus Prime is O. Ryan Pax. Optimus Prime being known in fiction as Ryan Pax before he became <laughs> Ryan <Optimus> Prime. <laughs> and he's presented in an interview as this Patrick Stewart Shakespearean actor guy who's like, all my role as King Lear has prepared me to play this icon for 30 years that talks to children and he has this great speech about playing against the first virtual reality actor because their actor portraying Megatron is an AI in a robot body. It's just such a weird idea. And it's, <laughs> and it's an amazing comic in terms of being, this is a comic comic. You couldn't make it into a cartoon or a novel or, oddly enough, a movie. And it's it's one of those things that I like about Tom Cioli because his work just pops. His work is like nothing else on the shelf. And even if you don't like it, you have to respect it. They have an interview with the actress playing uh, Scarlet. And she's like, oh, I know. I know the fans like to project romance in that thing. But me and the guy who played Duke are just lovers on the screen, not lovers in real life. And and then the interviewer asks her, you know, people are, are slashing you with Optimus Prime. <laughs> because because in the comic, which is an adaptation of the movie, she becomes like his binary partner. He, she's his headmaster. And she's like, well, yeah, you know, fans can do whatever they want. It's just an amazing work. Like I said, it's so mad. So, so bizarro mad. And I love it. I just, it's, you, you see, I'm just describing it and you're laughing. This is the thing about my feelings for Tom Scioli. You know, he, I respect him so much as a creator because of that manic energy and that completely unhinged, insane creativity and the way that he goes meta and the way that he understands very clearly what it was that people liked about these. I mean, look, if you went now to YouTube and watch an episode of the original G.I. Joe, you'd probably be horrified. Oh, yeah, it's crap. It's crap. It is complete crap. But when you think about it in terms of, okay, what would a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old watching this be thinking in the 1980s, he manages to tap into that in a way that more cynical creators can't, right? That when they try to, it goes wrong. He actually succeeds. Yeah. That said, you know, I just don't have time for that for me. The artistry of it is fantastic. I just don't. It's not something that appeals to me as a reader, but I have to give him credit for what he does because there are so few creators who even have that just raw talent, let alone know how to use it properly. I consider it in terms of something like X-Cop, which I remember enjoying when it just came around, but now when I'm reading it again, it feels very artificial to me. And it's, oh, it's what a 10-year-old kid thinks about. It's crazy weird. It's like, no... It's not really, it's like an adult interpreting some thrown away ideas by a child and constructing them in sort of a 
it wouldn't be funny if X, Y, and Z happened, but Sioni yeah. is actually in touch with that, right? He actually is in touch with his 10-year-old self in a way that nobody else in Scurby was. The way that he views the world as this grand tapestry where everything and anything can and should happen. Everybody wants to be Kirby. I think Sioli is one of the few who could boast. To, he gets as close as possible, I think. Just in terms of his design, in terms of how he constructs these stories, there is a sense of wonder to them that mainstream properties are just too jaded and cynical now. They think that all everybody wants is just a grown-up serious stuff. Like, if you're going to do a G.I. Joe story, it has to have sex and violence and you know it has to be real and no, gritty you, you, you can you can like I, I I adore Larry Hama's G.I. Joe which is an adult G.I. Joe I think as possible for a series meant to sell toys for 10 year old boys but I'm just saying it's a different way to do it and in a way that works it's a way I think that maybe is even more acceptable now simply because how could people not be tired of it at this point right Of the jaded, cynical, like very, let's be grim and gritty. We don't necessarily need that. Uh, anything else you've read? Uh, I read Island 15. I'm only quarter or halfway through that, I believe. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, it's impossible to spoil, but I mean, uh, let, let, well, this is the last issue of Island. We talked last episode about Ooh. its cancellation. Uh, nothing that Brendan Graham has said since the announcement of the cancellation has led me to lessen any of the blame that I assigned to him for this happening. Even in this issue... Um, Now, cancellation being because it's image, sales were low and he decided to cancel it. Nobody, nobody can tell him to cancel it. He has to decide that he doesn't make enough money off it. Right, but the reason that it wasn't working was because there were certain problems in the presentation. Yeah. And again, like we covered all this. And in this issue, actually, like it's, it's a pretty clear example of that. Because when you look at it, first of all, there's no attempt at closure for any of the stories that were left hanging in previous issues. Which, if he decided to pull the plug himself, he probably could have planned that better. Uh, Grim Wilkins wrapped up Miranda. And much like Gail Bertrand, it's a story that just doesn't survive... On the strength of silent storytelling, the art is very you know it, it does speak to you. it is very well put together, but I don't know what the story is about, so that doesn't work for me. The only highlight of that issue I thought was Dil Rajman, who has a really, really good story there called January. It's kind of vign- of a vignette, but it's a very interesting commentary, and I liked it. I should probably mention because you're not on Twitter, there was a bit of a Well, there was a lot of a brouhaha over his artwork and the presentation of the cover because, in case you don't know, Dirajman is not a black man. I believe he's half Indian. And there was a lot of talk about representation and what it means. And I don't think that I, as just you know, a white guy who's not very aware of these things, have a lot to add. I would say to people, go to Brendan Graham's Twitter page where he shared... Most of these criticism, which I would give him that point, unlike most creators who are you know talked to and criticized for doing the type of thing, he didn't immediately claim up and like, "No, I'm right, you're wrong, you're just s j w p c whatever he actually shared eventually all the criticism on his page, especially uh Daryl Iyo's very thoughtful commentary and Zinabaktar's talk about white creators using black imagery part of it, and I think this is also like to Brendan Graham's credit. 
for some reason, and I really don't understand why, creators in the mainstream companies today seem to have a real problem with even coping with the possibility of criticism. They just can't handle it in any way. And I find that really bizarre. You know, we were talking before the show started, we were talking about Nick Spencer making a complete fool out of himself. But let's not act like Nick Spencer is the only person who ever did that. Bendis, Miller, Ellis, Ennis, all the main, even Gail Simone once had a meltdown when a critic didn't like Welcome to Tranquility. I don't think it's just mainstream creators. I think we just see them more because they are in our eyes. Uh, just I think it was two years ago, uh, Jason Carnes, who does a lot of work for Fantagraphics, and did a comic called uh, Fucky Tour. Oh, that with a C, just a K, which was very much of a mock-up of, uh, since we've talked about G.I. Joe, you know, American interventions, and a lot of the cartooning was very much racist depictions of Muslims and Arabs being killed by this heroic American guy. And he said, well, it's a joke, you know, it's a joke. And everybody said, well, yeah, but you're still using racist techniques to depict these people. And he, he didn't want, well, in my learned opinion, he was like, no, shut up. I, I can do whatever I want. You're trying to silence me, which is very much what mainstream creators do. I just think it happens all the time in alternative comics. We just don't know of it because you and I, with, with all the respect, we don't follow the comics journal day in and day out. <laughs> no, we have better things to do with our time. I, I mean, I do think that that also comes with a certain obligation. Yes, we are more aware of it because it tends to happen more with creators to whom the mainstream media are already paying more attention. There's a reason that we know that Nick Spencer throws tirades, even though I don't have Twitter, because every time he does it on Twitter, somebody will report it, and that's what I'll end up reading. So, yeah, there is more attention, but then the flip side of that is, if you are closer to the public eye, if more people are aware of you, then to be blunt, shut the fuck up. Yeah, it's it's the the same thing that, you know, video game Twitter is having right now because of their personalities, which I would say I've become acquainted with uh video game Twitter only recently and it's made me so happy because I <laughs> because I was like because I was like, "Oh, comic book Twitter is not the worst. I found a lower depth. There is a place where people with names like PewDiePie and Jontron lie and and that's a brand new level of hell and their fans are thousand times worse than the most racist and most obnoxious of comic book fans. <laughs> Speaking as someone who has straddled those two cultures for a very long time, it is absolutely true that the video game culture is so... You know what a Lazarus pit looks like? Imagine that like video game culture is one of Ra's al Ghul's Lazarus pits, except that when you go in, you don't come out refreshed, you just come out crazy. Comic book uh, internet culture is, well, you can't call this guy I like racist because, you know, these comics just mention racism. And video game culture is like, well, yeah, this guy said some pro-Nazi stuff, but you can't call him a Nazi. Or, you know, he said some pro-Nazi stuff, but it's not that bad. If anything, comics tends to suffer because supposedly left-leaning and liberal-leaning creators 
tend to screw up every now and then without intending to. I mean, you remember how shaken I was from the whole Peter David thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is a guy who for 20 years was talking about gay rights and was uh, writing characters who had HIV in order to introduce that concept to readers who didn't even know what what that was. And all of that, right, dealing with, with domestic abuse and, and constantly reinforcing the idea of, you know, compassion and understanding that, and went on a racist tirade against Romani of all people. It's just, you never know, right? But that is, at least he had the sense to shut up about it. Video game culture, it never ends. This is the culture that invented Gamergate. Mm. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. So, honestly, at that point, it's just, well... There are worse fates. There are worse things than comic books. So uh, Island, like you said, um, well-designed, badly played, as it were. Part of it is also because, in retrospect, the stories that I took away from Island as being the best ones were more often than not the shorter ones, the ones that were done in one or something like that. Like Michael DeForge's mostly Saturn, uh, Kate Craig's Don't Talk So Much. The pervert was great. The Pervert had, I think, two installments, right? I it think, wasn't a one-shot. three or two, yes. So the shorter ones do seem to have had a more pronounced effect, or, or they just felt more interesting to me than these long-winded four-part, five-part stories that just, even in trade format, do not read well. I, I really liked Ancestor, and I like uh, Multiply Warheads, though I do understand why other people don't like them. Uh, but yeah, Island. Shame it's gone, but... It's a shame it's gone, but we have Sun Bakery and we have Packless. And all of these creators hopefully will find, you know, other avenues to distribute their works. Fingers crossed. Uh, well, I want to talk about one thing which will then lead me to another. One issue which will lead me to a series, as it were. Go for it. Uh, Judge Dread Deviations number one. This is the IDW line of basically what-ifs of their various properties. They did one a series of one shots last year and they're doing one now. And this is like their they have the American license for Judge Red. And this is written and drawn by John McCrae as a tribute to the late Steve Dillon. This is a take up from his uh, Cry of the Wolf serial. I don't know if you remember that, in which Dredd fought werewolves for a short while and then was bitten by one but was given the cure in the last minute. The end. Vaguely rings a bell. Yeah, it was in the like like Prague 400 or something, years and years, decades ago. It was a very good old school Dread. And McRae's take is, well, what if there wasn't any cure? And so Dread is still a werewolf, but because he has his passion for the law, he's like a cop wolf. He, he, he keeps on, he breaks out of the werewolf prison to fight crime because he just can't stop it. He can stop himself from being a werewolf, but he can't stop being a judge also. This is an almost good comic. It's almost there, but it's not enough. The art's lovely. I, I love McRae. He's one of those classic uh, British, you know, great storytellers. Yeah. The kind who's like, uh, I will do exactly what's in it on the page. And when I want to give like a good one shot page, it will look great because everything else is very down to the fundamentals. This is how to tell a story. Uh, but as a writer, he seems that he doesn't quite have the 2080 snap for telling it in five pages. 
this is about uh, 30 pages worth of story. And it feels like a bunch of shortcuts. Like, this is how he became a werewolf. This is why there's no cure. This is him breaking out of prison. This is him being sent out to the underground, like the under New York, to serve as a judge there. And this is him teaming up with the old judge who we met in the original storyline. Is there a through line or is it just... It's, you know, no, it's like there is a through line, but it's just too chopped to work properly to me to engage with it. It feels like it's trying to do a 2000D amount of story per page, but with a more American pacing, which is a clash. So, you know, one of the things that make 2000D work is that you actually feel by the end of every five pages a bit of breathless, oh, so many things have happened. And here it's just not there. Maybe because McCray has spent the last 20 years working in American comics. I don't think he did many 2000D things since the late 80s, early 90s. And... B, he's writing it. This is his first gig, not as an artist, but as a writer. So it's not a bad story. It's a, you know, it's a very fun story. There's a lot of great throwaway moments. Like, I really like the gag where the guy who is a conductor, like a musical conductor, but with earthquakes. And, and, he, <laughs> and, he, and he goes mad in the middle of a show. So like, I'm, I'm going to break the whole city. And that's why Dredd is out of prison, because the guy mistakenly broke, his, broke the jail. I like the general idea of it, of Dredd being, you know, he's a man werewolf, but he's first and foremost a judge, which is a good concept, but he just doesn't have the time and place to develop it and for us to get emotionally in touch with this version of Dredd. I have to say the, uh, the deviations project that IDW is doing right now is really interesting. It's sort of like what if... But, you know, there are Judge Dredd deviations. They're putting out an Orphan Black deviation soon. There was an X-Files deviation. It's interesting. It's a level of innovation with relation to licensed comics that they don't own, where at the very least, this is one way in which they can put a more original spin on things without being constrained by, you can't break the canon. And the problem is that they're more interesting than good. I've read most of them that came out last year, and the only one that I really liked was the uh, G.I. Joe one, which was actually written and drawn by Corey Lewis, who does Sunbakery, which was about what if Cobra had won. And it was just uh, Cobra Commander actually have to run the world and finds it a terrible bore. It's like, oh my god, why did I do this? I'm so... It's so hard. It's so hard ruling the world. I had so much, so much more fun fighting G.I. Joe. Can I come back to that? <laughs> but but this this one is it's almost of a good comic. It's it's very well drawn and it's and it's competently written, but it's just it's not there. What did it lead you to? Well, uh, you know, since you're with me on Facebook, that I've recently, just quite recently, have finally gotten into proper Strontium Dog, the original. Mm. Uh, Strontium Dog, written by John Wagner and Alan Grant, drawn 99.9% by Carlos Esquera. And I've read by now the first free uh, large collection, the Search Destroy Case Files. The Agency Files? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and I'm in love. <laughs> I'm proper in love with that thing. Uh, in case you don't know, in case the listeners don't know the glory that is Strontium Dog... It's the far future, there was a nuclear fallout after the war, and many of the children were born mutants. Most of them are not 
X-Men mutants, they're just really, really ugly looking. And naturally, there's racism and no and norms hate the mutants. And so most of them either live in ghettos or leave Earth for the stars. Because at this point, Earth has... Uh, there's intergalactic travel, there are alien planets, there are aliens, you can go away to the stars. And if you do want to find a job, the most common job for a mutant is as a search-destroy agent, a.k.a. bounty hunter. And because it's SD and and all the mutants got their uh, mutations from the radiation fallout of strontium P something? Strontium, strontium 90. Yeah. So they're also called strontium dog. And we mostly follow this guy, Johnny Alpha, who's a mutant with x-ray eyes and his partner wolf who's a time displaced viking because why not <laughs> why not why not have a time displaced viking and here's the thing the reason i like strontium dogs so much is that unlike judge red it finds its level very very fast judge red that i also read the complete case files doesn't seem to find any plateau up until case files volume 5 or something when they reach the uh, the apocalypse war the early years of Judge Red are just them throwing ideas on the wall like oh he's in the city and then he's on the moon and then he's a cowboy on the cursed earth and then he's in space on the judge child quest it's just they can't find the, the right thing to do with him while Strontium done from the get go it's oh no he's a bounty hunter here's the thing he hunts here's his partner and it's just a series of cool adventure stories that are building slowly and once you reach uh volume three without spoilers where they're doing the uh max baba storyline and then the rage storyline where johnny is just his friend died he just spends about 200 pages and like i said it's 2080 so every page is a work just murdering his way through the galaxy and just silently blowing with rage until he kills this guy with this great final shot of why are you doing this to me? Why are you torturing me, Johnny? And it's like, he looks at him and he's like, because I hate you. And it's just an amazing, this is what pop comics should be like. It's just super flowing, super enjoyable and never faulting. I haven't reached the end of it, but the first three volumes. I, I see. That's the thing. I would actually argue that the first volume is completely extraneous. Well, because not completely, but is weaker, yes. Yeah, I was reading the entire run, and it took me a very long time to get into it, because the first couple of stories are really weak. But once Portrait of a Mutant starts, which is uh, Johnny's two. origin story... Yeah, and this is the start of volume two. The thing with his father... You know, the storyline with, with the Creelers and all that. That's when the story really gets interesting. And Wagner starts with all this world building. And that's when the story sort of found its sea legs. And it was pretty consistent all the way through. I'm, I, I won't spoil for you, but I will say, like, the next volume you're going to read after the Agency Collections is The Final Solution. That was the capstone to the ongoing Strontium Dog series. And it used certain elements that... Fans of the series were not happy with. I was sort of okay with it. It was like, fine, whatever. You know, they're introducing all these different elements. And then after that run concluded, they started bringing in other writers to do sequel series that were not about Johnny Alpha, but about other characters and putting them in the center. And that was really, really interesting. The stories didn't always work. 
Sometimes there were spinoffs for characters who really should not have had spinoffs. Garth Ennis, I think, did a Gronk spinoff. That's a weird idea. They had Walter the Wobot strips in early 2018, so why not the Gronk? <laughs> the effect was pretty interesting. Uh, and then, of course, the character who ended up spinning out of Strontium Dog into her own series was Durham Red, who was this vampire mutant uh, that is established originally in uh, uh, Strontium Dog and then got her own book afterwards, like a thousand years into the future of this human-mutant conflict and what that means. And it turned more into space opera with uh, Abnett and Lanning. Mm. Yeah, it was pretty decent. I love Abnett and Lanning on space opera. Yeah, it actually worked out really well. So that corpus really holds together. It's one of the great epics of 2000 AD. I think it helps that A, they had time to rest between storylines because once they realized that Dread is the most popular strip, he had to be in every single week. And when you look at the early Strontium Dog, you know, it's short breaks, but there are actually, you know, four issue breaks between a large story arc. So, so Esquera can rest and fill up his engine and then be back on the drawing page. So it's only Esquera. You don't have that thing where it's one week, it's Brian Boland. Oh no, it's amazing. And next week it's Ron Smith. And oh, that's, that's a bit weird. And then the next week it's someone you never heard of again for probably a good reason. They, they never have that. They have... It's the same creative team through. With the exception of, of, I think, like one or two strips in every book is from the 2018-1983 one-shot or whatever, which nobody cares about. You can just ignore them. And the other thing is that it becomes, at a certain point, they do have a projection for the strip because Johnny eventually becomes rich enough to retire. And he just, you know, he and Wolf... They find a home on this nice planet and they save the locals enough time for them to be, well, you're mutants, but you're fine by us. And then the Mux Baba storyline happens. So there actually is a projection. Stuff happens and you can see this character having a clear through line of his life. And, well, the story is called The Final Solution. Nobody spoiled it for me when they said what happens to Johnny happens and what happens to Wolf happens. Yeah, although, of course, ironically, Wagner then sort of undid that he rebooted the series but not really and the first story was all about well the story you thought you knew in the final solution was actually a lie that was told by someone else and here's the truth and to be completely honest with you the reboot never really caught me i don't think it caught for anybody from what i know from other fans they mostly ignored and like yeah and even wagner pretty much ignore it. He he said, when I was in the 2080 panel, he said that the biggest regret he had in terms of writing for all these years is what he did in The Final Solution, that it should never have been that. At the time, it feels inevitable. This is what it leads to, right? Well, yes and no. I can understand Wagner's, that nagging feeling that maybe it could have been done better because the problem with The Final Solution Okay, I'm not going to spoil the whole thing for you. I'm, one small detail. Yeah, yeah, fine. It, it introduces an element of magic. Actual, straight-up magic. Well, they had it earlier. They had the one where he tries to resurrect the boy by going into the Hell Planet and talking to the evil necromancer. So it's, that's not new. It's not new, but it does feel kind of weird. It feels incongruous to the setting, which is so, you know, 70s sci-fi. 
And the final solution, the entire storyline sort of is pinned on that premise. And that was part of the controversy, right? That was part of the reason that people, you know, longtime fans of Strong Team Dog had a problem with it. Ultimately, I can understand why he wanted to go back and, I mean, it's significant that in the reboot, he doesn't deal with any of that magic stuff. It's more of a lo-fi thing. Yeah, it go, it tries to go back to the lo-fi style of the original Strong Team Dog, but I think something about it just, either Johnny Alpha's time had passed by then, or, I don't know, something wasn't working with it. But the core series itself absolutely holds up. It's, it's a Western in space, and what's amazing is they basically move via projection through different types of Westerns, because the early one is a very lighthearted, you know, white hats versus black hats. And then when they reach Portrait of a Mutant, it's more like early Clint Eastwood, of things are dirtier and greedier, and sure, there's a war and we have to defeat the enemy, but we're kind of dirty ourselves. We're, we're, exactly. we're, not, we're not the nice guys. And when it comes to the end of it, when you reach stuff like Rage, Rage is basically the Unforgiven. I'm not a good guy. I'm just going to kill everybody standing in my way. You've broken me and I will break you back. And it, and it's not a nice story. It's like, I was reading that and I was asking the 2000 AD fans that I know online, when you read this as a kid, what was your reaction to the scene where they basically tie to the ground and are burned alive by the sun for days and are just tortured and then... One strip just ends, not with, to be continued. They're tied to the ground, their eyes closed, and it says, The End. And you were a 10-year-old reading this, and I, I don't know, I don't remember. It, it seemed very hurtful at the time. Because it's a super bleak comic at a certain point. It is. It is. It, and it gets darker the further you go mm, in. And so uh, it's, it's an amazing work, really. <laughs> the only shame is that I didn't do it earlier. And if you don't know it, buy a Search Destroy Agency Files. Sorry, not Case Files is a Judge Dredd collection. Yeah, Case Files is Dredd. Agency Files uh, 1 through 3. No, 1 through 4. And then the, for some reason, they just put the final solution as a separate collection, even though it's, it functions as the fifth one. Well, the reason is money, Sean. It's much better to sell extra collections. And then uh, the Durham... I don't know if the Durham Red is still in print, though. No. 2000 AD had a terrible, terrible back issue bin. They just now, after about 10 years, have brought back the second volume of Nemesis the Warlock 2 print. They have volume 1 and 3 in print, and I have them both. And I wanted to buy volume 2, but I couldn't. Well, the sad thing is, like... If you look at their storefront, the website, uh, even in their digital trade. So, for example, they do have the Strontium Dog omnibuses and uh, the Final Solution, but they don't collect the, anything that came afterwards. Not the Durham Red series, not Young Midden Face. Yeah, do the digital collection at least. That's just weird. It, they don't have it. I don't, I'm not sure why. Uh, you know, everything else, see, I mean, they just put out, like, there's a Cabalistics Incorporated Complete Collection Digital. There's a Chopper Collection. That, you know, like, these things are out there. Look, Kirby just now coming back to print again after 20 years or so. Yeah, they're not, they're not as studious as I'd like them to be. Especially when, you know, they're sitting on a pretty sizable treasure trove of content that a lot of contemporary readers haven't seen. Yeah. 40 years of great comics and space babes. Yep. <laughs> space. 
space. I, I mean, I, I, they I, had the I, space I, Arthur you can't Wyatt deny it. asked online, well, what was the worst 2000 AD comic around? And I just posted the cover of Space Babes and, and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, it's either that or Blair One. You remember Blair One? I, you keep reminding me, even though I keep trying to forget it. <laughs> When you think about it overall, right, they had Zippy Couriers, they had Zenith, they had Halo Jones, Harry Kipling, uh, uh, Leviathan, Necronauts. This is a series that they even have like a lot of gems that most people have never even heard of because they fall between the cracks. Like there's this uh, series called Medivac 318, if you've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, the, they, there was digital codes for them in one of the magazines, so you can download them in parts. It's so unfortunate that they don't do proper collections, at least digitally, because this stuff is good. There was, there was a period where they were doing a lot of painted color stories. So stuff like, uh, From Grace, which was, uh, Cy Spurrier and Fraser Irving, mm. uh, Glimmer Rats, about Gordon Rennie's, I think one of Gordon Rennie's first stories with Mark Harrison, which is like this very elaborately painted, very dark sort of Warhammer 40K style story. And all that stuff has just sort of been forgotten in the interim just because nobody at 2000 AD is working to make these collections accessible. And they really should because there's good stuff out there. Mm, I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of the painted period in general. I like some of that stuff, but most of it feels like sub-bizly to me. Like, Beasley was super popular for a long time and everybody wanted to be him. Uh, David Bishop described when he was an editor in a recent interview, he said, up until the day that Frank Whiteley come in and did uh, Missionary Men, everybody wanted to do to be Beasley. And, and he came in and he did this lovely pencil work and everybody was like, I can do pencil artwork. It's legal. <laughs> Fog did not forbid it. It's just not popular. And then it was popular again. But yeah... Anything else uh, we want to talk nope. about? Because we have been going on for quite a while. Nope. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fine comics. A lot of, well, not as fine comic and one terrible TV show, which I think overall is a good catch. Yeah, that's a pretty good batting average for, for an episode. Uh, so I was Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.